book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans 1, verse 8. Let's pray together. Father, as we sang for you to be glorified, we desire that in our lives. We give you thanks. We acknowledge you as our creator, that you are supreme, God, that you're our authority, that you're good, that you're gracious, that you're kind. We pray that your spirit would fall upon us. Jesus, we know that you're with us. You promise to never leave us or forsake us. We pray for clarity in your word and that your word would bring us to the place of the cross, seeing our need for your goodness, your grace, your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been really excited for the last several months to get into the book of Romans. I enjoy all of the books of the Bible, but I especially love the book of Romans. I think if I had one book of the Bible uh, to teach, it would be the book of Romans. Dr. Barnhouse, who wrote a large volume on the book of Romans, said, when a believer's Bible falls open, it should fall to the book of Romans. A very easy, quick outline of the book of Romans is the first 11 chapters speak of doctrine. And it's the doctrine of salvation. It's the doctrine of righteousness from heaven, righteousness revealed. It's God's grace. It shows us our need for the grace of God, that we can't be saved any way other than the blood of Jesus Christ. God's grace is that deep. It's that rich. It causes us to meditate upon the goodness of God for 11 whole chapters. And then chapter 12 is duty. So you've got Doctrine and then duty, from chapter 12 to 16 is duty. It's our response to the grace of God. If you just start studying the book of Romans in chapter 12, you've really missed it because it's on the foundation of who God is and his grace for us. We've got a lot of work to do tonight because we're going to endeavor to get through the rest of chapter 1. Kent did a great job setting this up last week, which I'm thankful for. So let's jump right in in verse 8 of chapter 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul often thanked God for believers. That's not our tendency. Our tendency is to look down on believers, judge believers, we get hurt by believers, see the shortcomings in believers. But Paul, as he drew close to Christ, he saw God's heart for the believers and God's working through believers, and he oftentimes gives thanks. And he's thankful for the church in Rome. Their faith is heard of throughout the whole world. Paul would know. He had been through the known world, and when he traveled, he heard of this faith of the church of Rome. Faith spreads. In verse 9, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. So God is the witness for the Apostle Paul. He's serving with his spirit. His heart is into it. And he's serving in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel had saved Paul, and he's currently serving in the gospel. The gospel was his motivation. In these next few verses, he's going to mention the gospel several times. It's the driving force in the Apostle Paul's life. He says, I always make mention of you in my prayers without ceasing. If you studied with us through the book of Acts, you know that Paul has not yet been to Rome. 
He hasn't personally met these believers. It's like hearing about the church in Czech Republic and be so burdened for them that you write them a letter, that you decide to pray for them daily and pray for them without ceasing. And Paul's not lying about this because a lot of times when we say, I'm praying for you, we don't really mean it, unfortunately. Someone shares something with us and we go, oh, I'm going to be praying for you. And then we don't ever pray for them. Maybe it's just a nice thing to say or that's what Christians are supposed to say. But that, that's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm actually praying. I told you I'm praying and I'm praying for you. Something about Paul is he really believed in the power of prayer because he mentions it in all of his introductions to these churches. He says, hey, I'm praying for you guys. If you want change in the lives of those that you love around you, pray for them. That's the greatest thing that you can do for others is lift them before the throne room of God. If you knew somebody that needed help and you could get them an advocate, you could get some with resources, maybe a tutor, maybe a mentor, maybe a life coach, and they were a powerful, influential person, you'd probably do it. How much more so to go before God and say, God, here's the ones that I love and without ceasing. And the idea of without ceasing is like a continual cough in your throat or a sneeze that you get. It's that time of year, isn't it? You can relate. And it's that continual thought of these believers on your heart and mind lifting them before the throne room of God. Verse 10, making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Paul desperately wants to come to Rome if it is the will of God. He has no idea that he will come to Rome as a prisoner, as we saw at the end of the book of Acts. Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, I may be encouraged together with you by mutual faith, both of you and me. Don't you love this? Paul's saying, I want to see you, I want to spend time with you, so that you can be built up, you can be established in your faith but also so that I can receive and I can be encouraged. Every friendship, fellowship, relationship with another believer, it's a two-way street. It's giving and receiving. Paul comes to be a blessing, but he knows that he's going to be blessed in return. Paul didn't have this idea that I'm the great apostle Paul, and no one can encourage me, that he didn't need encouragement, or that he was beyond friendship or fellowship. He knew that it was something he was going to impart and something that he was going to receive. Verse 13, Now I, want you, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've often planned to come to you, but I was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. Paul says, I've got a plan. He had a plan to go to Rome, but that plan was submitted into the hand of God. God hindered him from coming to Rome up until this point. It's good to have a plan. God, God's word doesn't say not to plan, but put that plan in the hand of God and allow God to redirect that plan. Why does Paul desire to come to Rome to encourage these believers? Because Paul was a man that had a heart for population centers. We look at his life and his ministry, his missionary journeys, and he went to where the people were. I think this is a great example to go and reach people. If you're called to a certain country, to a certain place, go to the, with a city and pray that that city would be one for Jesus Christ. And then from that place, the gospel goes through the whole entire country. Verse 14, he says, I'm a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise 
and unwise. Barbarians were those who didn't speak Greek. So if you didn't speak Greek, you were known in that culture as being a barbarian. So that's probably most of us here tonight. We're, we're barbarians. It doesn't mean that they were cannibals or anything like that, just that they didn't speak Greek. And it's interesting that Paul says he's a debtor both to the Greek, to the barbarian, to the wise and the unwise. Paul saw his life as I've received grace, I've received forgiveness. I've received the gospel, so I'm in debt to then share that gospel with others, to people that he hadn't even met. That, that was put upon his heart. He's taken ownership of the gospel. And is it that way in our lives? God, you've forgiven me. You've allowed me to know the truth. And so there's this burden that's been placed upon me for souls. There's this desire to see people come to know Christ. I'm indebted to them. I've received grace, so I must share that grace. Verse 15, so as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. As much as is within me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. First question is, what is the gospel? Paul is going to spend the next 11 chapters explaining the gospel in detail. Why we need the gospel, what exactly is the gospel, how it's appropriated to our lives, in simple form, the gospel is this, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again three days later according to the scriptures. He died and he rose again for our sins. And Paul says, I'm ready to share this good news. I'm ready to share the gospel. The armor of God described in Ephesians 6, we find that our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Everywhere that we go, going in the gospel of peace. Lord, this world's not my home. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to get too stressed out about the things of this earth. I want as many people to go with me as possible. And are we ready to preach the gospel? The gospel's preachable. The gospel's good news. The gospel is what people need to hear. And Paul says, I'm ready to go to Rome. Think about this. This is the capital of the Roman Empire. This is no small city. And Paul's saying, I'm ready to preach it to the whole city. I'm ready to go to the whole city. Paul, that makes no human sense. That's more than one man could do. That's the point. It's going to be supernatural through the power of God. Are we ready to preach the gospel to our neighbors, our, our coworkers, our family, Colorado Springs, whatever God may call us? This evening, right before church, we were doing a little devotional as a family around the dinner table, and it was talking about being a disciple and being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I asked some simple questions like, what did they have to leave to follow Jesus Christ? What would it be like to follow Jesus Christ daily? I mean, think about that. You know, if you were following Christ, what would that have been like? I think it would have been a lot of unpredictability, don't you? Christ is saying, we're doing this. No, we're doing this. I want you guys to go across the, the Sea of Galilee. And by the end of it, nobody liked Christ. And they crucified Christ. And they were saying they wanted to kill you as well. And then ask the classic question in this devotional, are you willing to follow Christ wherever he may call you to whatever he would ask you to do? If Christ were living on the earth today, what would he ask you to do? And it's really easy to go, sure, yeah, yes, sure, yes, yes. And then you start to think about it. Well, what does it cost? What is it that the Lord's asking me 
to give up? And that's another question for us to, to consider. But Paul says, I'm ready. I'm ready to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome also. Here's his motivation. Notice it's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul says, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. Many people will be offended by the gospel. Paul realizes that. To those that are perishing, it's foolishness, but he's not going to be ashamed about the gospel. It's interesting, you know, you can almost talk about anything under the sun, but then when it comes to start talking about Christ, it's easy to him and haw a little bit. It's easy to hesitate a little bit. It's easy to be ashamed, or I don't know if I should say this, or I don't know how it's going to be received. Always to be preached in love. Always to be preached with grace. Always to be preached with, with truth, but at a core level, are we ashamed of the gospel? Do we not want people to know that, that we're a Christian? Do we shy back from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? If someone had the cure to all kinds of cancer, would they be ashamed of it? Would they be like, I don't know. They may not like it. They may be offended. They may not like the bad news that they have cancer. So I'm not going to share with them the good news, the cure of cancer. You'd be sharing that good news like it's going out of style. Your Facebook account would be going berserk. You'd be sending out tweets like nobody's business and getting it out there because you're not ashamed. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm not ashamed of of this good news because it's powerful. Not only is the gospel preachable, but it's powerful. It's the power of God to salvation. And we're going to see why we need salvation, why we need the gospel. It's going to be laid out to us in great detail. But Jesus' death and his resurrection, the blood of Jesus, it's that powerful to provide salvation. It's not works. It's not anything that we can do to contribute to the equation. It's God's gift of love. It's his power on display that he can take sinners, forgive them, remove their sin as far as the east is from the west and cause them to be righteous in himself positionally in Jesus Christ. Grant them eternal life. It's the power of God. When you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing the power of God. What's the regrets that we're going to have when this life is over not being more concerned with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others? What's the answer today? It's the gospel. What do churches need to be committed to? The gospel. What do we as believers need to make sure that we never lose sight of? It's the gospel. People don't need programs. They don't need social clubs. They need the gospel. They need to understand the reality of Jesus Christ. Life groups, small groups, churches cannot save you from your sins. Only Jesus Christ can. All of those things are great and all those things are wonderful when we're in Christ Jesus, but we have a far greater mission than just trying to get people busy into programs. Amen? Amen. We want them to know Jesus. We want to share that love with them. We need that conviction that me personally, not just the Apostle Paul, 
not just those that are in full-time ministry, but God, you've allowed me to share the good news, to to share the gospel, because it's the power of God to everyone who believes. Could God really mean that? I mean, does everyone mean everyone? Does whosoever mean whosoever? Isn't there some kind of clause on that? Like, if you're a murderer, could you believe in the gospel and be saved? Could you repent and believe and, and be saved? Absolutely. And that's the power of the gospels. It saves to the uttermost and the guttermost. You following me? It's everyone. It, whosoever believes that trusts in, in faith in Jesus Christ is saved. In verse 17, this is the theme verse for the book of Romans. If you're looking for the theme of this book, for in it, that's the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The theme of the book of Romans is righteousness revealed. Righteousness from heaven. Righteousness applied, appropriated to our lives. How is the righteousness of God revealed? It's through the gospel. The gospel shows us our need for grace, our need for salvation. The gospel shows us that it's provided in Jesus Christ. And how does God's righteousness be revealed into our lives from faith. It's through believing in Christ, trusting in Christ, continuing and sustaining faith in Christ from faith to faith. You never leave faith. You never depart from faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Quite simply, what we're going to understand is how dirty, rotten sinners, wretches like us, can become righteous in the blood of Jesus Christ through faith. And this phrase, the just shall live by faith, is in the scriptures in four different books of the Bible. And this is worth writing down. This is a fabulous study. The first time is in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Not Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Minor prophet Habakkuk 2 verse 4. God's revealing his plan for the nation of Israel. The prophet doesn't understand it. God says to him, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk, you're going to have to trust this by faith. Now we find in the New Testament writings that there's books of the Bible developed off of this sentence. The book of Romans focuses on the word just and gives to us the doctrine of justification, which means we're declared righteous by God. So Paul writes a whole entire letter based on the emphasis of the just. How do we become justified before God? And then the shall live In Galatians, we have this phrase used as well. So Paul uses this in Galatians as well. And what's focused on is shall live. And then it's used in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews emphasizes faith. What does a life of faith look like? So Romans, the just. Galatians, shall live. Hebrews, by faith. This is where we come to understand that salvation is by faith apart from our works. Martin Luther, 1544, was striving to be righteous before God in his own works, praying, fasting, even beating himself, whipping himself, just trying to be good enough to earn and deserve God's favor when he heard these words, the just shall live by faith. He came to understand the gospel. He came to understand that he was justified By grace alone, through faith alone, it became the foundation of his faith and his ministry and led to the Reformation. 
if you are in a place where you're thinking that you have to approach God by your work, stay tuned through the book of Romans. If you're waffling on your salvation and you're wondering if you're saved and what it means to be saved, a good study in the book of Romans is going to solidify you in understanding it's through grace in Jesus Christ as we trust him through faith. We go on into verse 18, and verse 18 presents a new section in the book of Romans. I want you to use your imagination tonight a little bit. We're going to be taken into a courtroom for the next several weeks, and it's God's courtroom. And God is using the Apostle Paul as the master attorney, and he's putting us on trial before God. And what this is leading to from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23 is one that you may be familiar with, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What Paul does is he shows us all different kinds of people and why each person is brought to a place where they need the grace of God. Before we can understand the good news, we have to understand the bad news. And the bad news is condemnation. The bad news is we deserve the wrath of God. God's not unjust in giving us his wrath. We deserve it because of our unrighteousness. And the first person that goes into the courtroom is someone who doesn't have a religious background, that doesn't have access to the scripture. Their primary revelation of who God is is through creation. So verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So not only is the righteousness of God revealed, but also the wrath of God is revealed. In order for God to be righteous, he has to be just. How would you feel about a police department that just said, oh, boys will be boys? How would you feel about a judge that just said, well, girls will be girls. That's just the the way that it goes. That's not righteousness. And so God, in his justice, he has a holy wrath. And his wrath comes upon those who, on ungodliness, suppress the truth and righteousness. And if you're taking notes uh, this evening, what you find is the first distinction of unbelief is the suppression of truth. The suppression of truth. If someone suppresses the truth for their whole entire life, they will bring themselves to the place where they receive the wrath of God. It's not God's desire. He doesn't want any to perish, but that's their choice. They have that free will if they want to suppress the truth. The second half of Romans chapter 1, it shows us the pathway to depravity. It's the downward spiral that takes place in our lives. Church, this is where it starts. This is right where it starts, is suppressing the truth. And if you look up the word suppressing, it's not passive. There's nothing passive about suppressing the truth. It's like a young boy. Let's say he's eight years old, and they just got a puppy. He decides to take the puppy up into his room. He puts it into his toy chest because he hears mom and dad coming to tuck him in. And then he sits upon the toy chest. He's suppressing that puppy, isn't he? It's okay. The puppy lived. It's all right. (laughs) But it's an active, willful choice. This word suppress, it means to hold off or to hold down. 
This means the truth of who God is is being revealed and someone is holding that off. They're, they're putting it down. I don't want the truth. I don't want to learn about a creator. I don't want to acknowledge that God created the universe. I'm rejecting that. I'm, I'm suppressing that. Obviously, there's unbelievers that do this through the course of their lives, but believers, may we be careful to not do this in our own life. Is there some area of God's truth that we're suppressing? Some area of God's truth that we're holding off? Some area of God's truth that he's convicting us, but we're talking ourselves out of it? It's a willful choice, and it leads to the beginning of a, of a downward spiral. In verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. I want to challenge some of your cultural views of God. Some of you may think that it's unjust for a God to send people to hell. I think it would be unjust for God not to send people to hell if he was holy. If he's holy, he has every right for then for us to receive punishment from God. Do you really want a God who doesn't stand up against wickedness? who doesn't stand up against evil. But we're living in this day where people put themselves above God and they judge God and say, if God is love, then how can God punish people for their sins? But remember, he provides an advocate in Jesus Christ. And it's through suppressing and rejecting the truth that ultimately judge comes upon us. Judgment comes upon us. Also, we don't want to accept that people reject the truth. We have this cultural misunderstanding that some people are ignorant when it comes to God. What does Romans 19 tell you? Verse 1, verse 19, that God has revealed himself through creation. God has manifest himself to them through his creation, and they rejected that revelation of God. That's not very cultural, but it is biblical. Look at it closely for yourself, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Design demands a designer. And God says that there should be this understanding through creation that we are made by God. I hear that Apple has some new products out on the market. Have you heard that? the iPhone 6, new iPad, those, those kinds of things. And no one would hold up a new iPhone and say, there is no designer here. This is a product of evolution. I took my iPhone 4, I broke it up into a thousand pieces, put it into a jar that shook and shook and shook and shook for two years, and guess what happened? I got an iPhone 6. I'm open-minded. I'm, I, am, I think I'm open-minded. If evolution is true, just show it to me. Just show it to me. And, and let, let's see it play out in the, the, this process. But we see creation all the time. We're made in God's image, and when someone creates something, design demands a designer, and we look around at the creation of God, and there should be this understanding by the things that are made that they're designed by the Lord. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So there's a revelation of God through creation. 
If someone looks at creation and they say, there is no God, I'm going to be an atheist, then God holds them accountable. They suppress the truth. They put it down. They put it off. They said, I don't want to acknowledge that there is a creator. Design demands that there's a designer. Psalms 119 speaks of the heavens declaring the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. And night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Napoleon came up against some of his soldiers in the evening. And they were talking about the existence of God. Saying that God doesn't exist. And Napoleon says, sirs, if you're going to get rid of God, you must get rid of those. And he pointed to the stars. We know so much more about the stars and the galaxies than prior generations. We're just one small galaxy of countless. Scientists know that we don't even know how many galaxies there are. We have no comprehension of how many stars that there are. So this is the first step to depravity. This is the first step on this slippery slope is suppressing the truth. In verse 19, or excuse me, verse 21 Because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful, becoming futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The second distinction of unbelief is the perversion of truth. They knew God, but they didn't glorify him as God, and they're not thankful. So let's think about this for for just a moment. What would it mean to not glorify God in this context? To not give God credit for his creation. To say there is no God. To ascribe it to to something else. They didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. And then what happens is that they become futile in their thoughts. Their thoughts have no outcome of any productive thing. It's just futility. And then their hearts are darkened in, in foolishness. So do you see this step? Do you see this progression? The first step is suppress the truth. And then the second step is, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist the truth. I'm going to change the truth. It's going to be the perversion of the truth. And then God gives them over, and they become futile in their thoughts and their foolishness of heart. This hit me a couple of years ago in reading the book of Romans. Do you know how dangerous it is to be unthankful? Let me say that again. Do you know how dangerous it is for us to be unthankful? One of the things that leads to this list of absolute depravity is unthankfulness. But how often am I unthankful? And that hit me again this afternoon in studying and praying through this passage. When I choose to be unthankful, I'm allowing my heart to become darkened. It becomes a dark and foolish place. And my mind becomes futile and there's not thoughts of productivity. But the opposite's true. When I glorify God for who he is, Didn't it feel wonderful to glorify God in worship? We don't don't worship to feel good. But isn't there something that goes, oh, my soul came into alignment. I got my eyes off of myself and I gave glory to God for who he is. This is why I was brought into existence is to glorify God. And so when we're thankful for, for who he is and what he's provided, it causes the positive impact upon our soul. We oftentimes analyze the will of God and we should. But at the base of the will of God, it's thankfulness. God says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I don't know if you're supposed to work at Baskin Robbins or Chick-fil-A or the Honda dealership or the toy order dealership or be a nuclear scientist or pastor or missionary or be married to this person or that person, but I do know this, you're supposed to be thankful. Wherever you work, whatever you do, whatever your circumstance, because God is good. There's a profound impact that happens when we're unthankful. I believe thankfulness is a spiritual discipline to put into our lives. Because many of us are just not naturally thankful. When we wake up and we go through the day, we're going to find all of the things that aren't going our way instead of reflecting upon who God is. Professing to be wise, they become fools. Isn't that interesting? Claim great intellect, but they've actually become foolish because they've rejected the existence of God. They've suppressed the truth. They've twisted the truth, and here you see this perversion of truth. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Have you noticed that idolatry is always changing the image of God, something that's incorruptible, corruption can't touch, into something that's animal-like? And a lot of the false religions throughout history, they worship some aspect of creation and, and nature. And they've changed the glory of God into corruptible man. They're, they're worshiping man. It becomes humanism. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Verse 24, here's what God does in response to this. So if you're looking at the distinctions of unbelief, there's the suppression of truth, there's the perversion of truth, the changing of truth, and then God's response to it is the perversion of life. Perversion of life is, is God then confirms this decision. Therefore, God also gave them up to their uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Eventually, God's going to confirm your choice. If this is what you want, if you want to suppress the truth, if you want to reject the truth, then go for it. God gives them up. This is part of the wrath of God. Saying, okay, here you go. Here's your uncleanliness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. And we'll begin to see in this downward spiral that out of this comes sexual depravity. They dishonor themselves. Once there's man-centered worship, there's going to be the dishonoring of one another. See how that takes place? They're dishonoring their bodies among themselves. They're destroying each other. Remember the great commandment that Jesus said? Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You get God-centered. You get worship in its proper place. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're not going to dishonor your neighbor. We find that taking place as we continue. Verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Every time we reject the truth, we're going to replace it with a lie. No exceptions. We're going to believe something. So if you reject the truth, you're going to replace it with a lie. We're created to be worshipers. We're going to worship something. So they've rejected the truth of God, and they're worshiping and serving the creature rather than creator. Have you seen this phenomenon taking place around us all the time? What's there an elevation of? Creation. And creation's wonderful. They think of all people as God's children. We should appreciate creation 
and glorify God for it. Amen? But something's out of balance. There's a false priority where now we're worshiping creation instead of the creator. We're worshiping the creature instead of worshiping the one true living God. And the animal kingdom and Mother Earth and all of this has gotten out of proportion. Where all of a sudden people's animals are more important than human life. And I don't mean this to be disrespectful. I mean it to speak truthfully and honestly. Is sometimes I wonder if pets are treated better in our society than kids and children. And there's, there's more resources and time and energy given into pets than there is into our own children. And somewhere that's mixed up. We got a dog. I love our dog. She's great. But I hope I love my kids a little bit more than my dog, right? And we see this wrong alignment of, of priorities. It's a worship of creation instead of the creator. Why do we go this direction? Because if we can make a God in our image or the image of creation, I don't have to be accountable to it. But if I'm going to worship the one true living God, then I have to be accountable to him. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heir which was due. Now before you get up and leave, because you're really offended, hang tight, look in your Bible, and look at the whole list that we're going to cover in just a moment. Because I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Okay, There's a whole lot of other things that we're going to cover in about five minutes. So just wait, and we're not going to just focus in on homosexuality. We're going to deal with this whole list that is, is taking place. Let's look at what this verse is saying. What it's saying is there's a progression when we suppress the truth, when we reject the truth, when we twist the truth, then there's ramifications. One of the ramifications is sexual depravity. God gives them over to their lusts. And I hear this a lot, that people say, God's word never says that homosexuality is wrong. Well, now you know, okay? You, you read it for yourself. I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. It's God's word. It says it right there. I think it's pretty clear that God's dressing homosexuality there. You'd have to totally abuse the text to think that that is not talking about homosexuality. So what does God say about homosexuality in verses 26 and 27? And I'm just pointing this out to you. Vile passions, that's what God calls it. Because this is not what God intended for sexuality. It wasn't his design for sexuality. It says it's unnatural. It's against nature. We don't even see it in the animal kingdom, no matter what PBS tries to tell you. We don't see it in the animal kingdom. It's unnatural. It says also in these verses, it's an expression of lust. It's not love, no matter how we want to spin it. It's an expression of lust. It's damaging. It's not life-giving. Scripture says it. Again, I'm just the messenger. It says it's shameful. It also says that it comes with a cost, with a price tag among themselves. There's some physical ramifications that come from the decision of homosexuality. Why is there more verses, more words that are given to homosexuality in Romans chapter 1 than the other sins that we're going to see in just a moment? 
Because I think God in his wisdom knew that we would question homosexuality. God knew all things from the beginning, from the end. And it seems as though people don't question that gossip is wrong. They don't question that disobeying parents is wrong as much. But throughout history and our day currently, there's this question with God about homosexuality. God knew that, so he addresses it in greater detail here for us. Something that you've heard me say that I hope you understand is this. Is homosexuality a sin like any other sin, but it's still sin. So it's not worse than any other kind of sin. We're going to go on and see that all of this brings us to the foot of the cross. All of this brings us to the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, but it's still a sin. So it's not worse. So please hear me on this. I'm an equal opportunity offender, all right? Across the board, sin is sin, but in good conscience and being faithful to God's word, we can't make it into something that God hasn't declared it as. And this really hit my heart this afternoon. If we declare that this is no longer sin and we put it into the category of you're born this way and it's similar to race, and that's kind of the discussion of today. So we as a church, as we as God's people, if we adopt that and we say this is what we believe and even more so, this is what God says, that God created people this way And it's not an issue of sin. It's not an issue of choice. Think about the person tonight who's struggling with homosexuality and has no life inside of that lifestyle. And we're telling them, God created you this way instead of the fact that God loves you. He died for you. You're a sinner just like me. And God wants to transform and change your life and bring you into an abundant life. It's probably the most cruel thing that we could do to someone. If someone's in heterosexual sin tonight and we said, you know what, God created you this way. And the reality is, is they're going to continue going on destroying their life to the point of hopelessness and shame and guilt and thinking that this is life, but it's bringing death. And then I'm telling them, God blesses this. Yeah, just go out and sleep with as many people as possible. Keep looking at pornography. It's the Lord's will. It's the way the Lord designed you. Oh, man, that seems like the most mean, cruel thing that I could do to a person. If someone's out there playing in Academy Boulevard thinking that it's life-giving when it's life-threatening, and I'm pronouncing God's blessing on that, how is that kind and how is that loving on my part? So do you see what happens to the individual, to the person, when we change God's message. So I want to address this. If you're in the midst of this lifestyle, please hear, God loves you. And come to the cross and realize that Jesus died for you and forgives you and transforms you and changes you from the inside out. And you're not different than me. As we'll go through and read this list, I deserve to be stoned. Because I am very disobedient to my parents growing up as a child. It could probably still be a struggle for me, if I'm honest, but it's not that much of an issue anymore. I'm guilty. You're guilty. We're all guilty. It brings us to the grace and the mercy of God, but God wants to set you free. Paul wrote to the first Corinthians, and he says this list of what the church was into before they were saved, sexually immoral, and he lists homosexual. 
See what Paul's saying? It's God has saved you and delivered you out of this lifestyle. The world's not telling you that, but that's the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. So let's go on to see the rest of this list. And even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. So there's sexual depravity, but there's a mental depravity. Probably the most important thing about us is to retain the knowledge of God. In your mind, fight for the knowledge of God. In worship, in the word, throughout life, throughout every day, to retain who God is. Because once we lose the knowledge of God, we get given over to a corrupt mind, to a debased mind. It starts in the mind. Actions start with the mind. Being, verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. Righteousness is right onness. It's a regard for what is right. So we're filled with unrighteousness, sexually immoral. So God dresses homosexuality, but he addresses all kinds of sexual immorality here, homosexual and heterosexual. Sexual immorality is any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. Wickedness is evil, and we're rediscovering the nature of evil in our world today. Fifteen years ago, you didn't hear a lot of talk about wickedness and evil, but now you're hearing it because it's on display. Covetousness is longing for something that God hasn't provided for you. Malice is a desire to inflict harm. Full of envy is you wish for a car, a house, a promotion, something that belongs to someone else, but you envy it in your own life. Murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whispers. Did God just include all of these things in the same list? Homosexuality, murder, strife, envy, covetousness, deceit. And don't think that God rates sin. God doesn't go, well, well lying, that's a one. You're kind of okay with one. If you're just a liar all through your life, then you don't need the grace of God. And sexual sin, well, that's a 12. He puts it all together on the same list. He brings us all to the foot of the cross. A whisperer deserves the wrath of God because they're a backbiter. They went around destroying people's reputation. It's been known to be the pastime of the church. Haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, things disobedient to parents. Ouch. Talk about need for the gospel right there. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. There's a lot of un in there. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, not fulfilling your word, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those things who practice them. Did you catch that? So you could get through that list squeaky clean. I'd like to meet you if you've never fallen in anywhere of that list. You might be able to get through that list squeaky clean, but then you approve of any of these things you're guilty before God. So you approve of lying. So you approve of sexual immorality. So you approve of strife. 
Okay, I'm guilty before God. This is Rome. This is the Roman Colosseum. Entertainment was watching people get murdered. I never murdered anybody, but I sure to love to buy tickets to go to the Roman Colosseum and watch gladiators fight to their death. They approved of it. And by approving, we're guilty before God. I want you to fast forward in your Bible just a little bit. Go to Romans 3 and look with me in verse 23. Because this is the point. And I encourage you to study ahead. We're going to study chapter 2 next week and read ahead. Because Paul is bringing all of us to this place. He's saying, Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned. Do you believe that now? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace. And we're going to go into this in great detail in weeks to come. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Man, in reading this, you know what it does to my soul? It causes me to see the need for God's wrath in my own life. But it causes me to be so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus took the wrath for me. That's the purpose of Romans 1. The purpose of Romans 1 is not for us to get on a hobby horse. The purpose of Romans 1 is to see our own depravity. To see our own brokenness before God. To be undone before him. God, I'm unholy. I'm undone before you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And then to see the world differently and to understand they need the good news. They're fallen just like I'm fallen. and Jesus died for them. And it's my great privilege, and I'm even in debt to share with them the price that Jesus has paid for them. So we get to come and do that tonight, as we get to come to the communion table and remember what Christ has done in appreciation. But before we do that, it would be so wrong for me to not give you an opportunity to come to Jesus Christ as your Savior right now. Because we've talked about the gospel all evening. It's not through your works, it's through faith. To believe that Jesus is God that he died for you and rose again, understanding there's nothing that you could do to cleanse yourself from your sin, from your unrighteousness. And Jesus is here. He's risen from the dead. He's knocking upon the door of your heart, and he's saying, will you give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ? As we've read tonight, if you choose to reject Christ, suppress the truth through the course of your lifetime, then you will receive the wrath of God but God is ready to pour out his grace upon you. What are you doing? You're receiving a gift by faith, saying, Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose again. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm turning away from my sin. Be the Lord of my life. So in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to ask that you'd raise your hand, that you'd hold it up high to Jesus. I'm going to say a prayer with you. So let's pray together. Father, we thank